Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello, everybody. Sam Edmund here. With thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives, we're looking back on the best of your sporting life for 2020. Today, let's revisit our chat with colourful former jockey, the pumper. Jimmy Cassidy. We're speaking to one of Australia's most popular jockeys. The fact that Jim Cassidy was also the ultimate colourful racing identity only adds to the legend. In a stellar 38-year career, the pumper, as he became known, won 104 Group 1 races, including two Melbourne Cups. The New Zealander was brilliant in the saddle and cheeky out of it, making him a favourite with the media and punters, if not officialdom. Jimmy, hello and welcome. Good morning, gentlemen. Well, where, where do we find you, Jimmy, at the moment? I'm actually in Sydney, a little bit of rain leading into a beautiful week. Um, yeah, happy as I've been doing a bit of work for Jim and Greg Lee down at the stables, so getting back and getting the old tools out again. Ah, living the dream, living the dream. Well, let's go back a bit, shall we? You grew up, as I say, on the other side of the ditch. Now, you were born in Lower Hutt, New Zealand, outside Wellington. What was what was childhood like out there, Jimmy? Oh, look, it was beautiful. We spent a lot of our time uh, playing footy. Uh, travelling away, one of seven, so we sort of packed up and travelled around New Zealand to different race meetings after football, and yeah, it looked like it was a dream. Uh, always had the ambition to get away to the stables, school holidays, I got away and done that, and very thankful to mum and dad for giving me the opportunity. And mum and dad were Arthur and Francie, of course, and yeah, as, as uh, I was going to mention, you had a few siblings, you just mentioned one of seven, never a dull moment in the uh, the household, I wouldn't have thought. No, well, I think that's how my dad got the nickname Pumper once. <laughs> he worked a few jobs too, didn't he, as you were growing up? Yeah, he did. He, he was an upholster by trade and worked at the post office and Commonwealth Bank. No, a great father and a very dedicated family husband. And, uh, yeah, no, I, uh, he was a great dad. And you mentioned getting away to the stables, but as a kid, I think you'd sit in the stands and you'd watch the, the Wellington Cup every year running around picking up the losing tote tickets, wouldn't you? That's correct. And being my hometown, Wellington, uh, loved getting to Trentham. Pretty much run on my birthday, Wellington Cup Day, the 21st of January. So it was always a nice day, nice way to spend birthday, running around picking up, hopefully winning tickets that people had thrown away. You ever find one of those? Found plenty, yeah. I found one one day that was worth about ninety dollars, and yeah, always picked up sort of twenty or thirty dollars in losing tickets, which was uh, which was good. I give it to dad and mum, and spent it on things that they needed for the family. Obviously, fantastic. Well, I was going to say that's good of you because I was going to say ninety bucks for a kid might as well be ninety thousand. 
I'll tell you what it was like, 90,000 when I found it, I can tell you. <laughs> you. Horses were always in your blood, of course, but as a kid you wanted to be an all-black too. I mean, I'm thinking all-black jockey is a fair difference in the physical requirements. Well, I looked in the mirror when I was uh, when I was 15, thinking jockey, all-black, and I thought I'd better be a jockey because I've never seen a four-foot-two all-black run around. <laughs> but, but, you know, in all seriousness, both sports need courage, and you had that. Yeah, look, I, I love my union. I actually toured Australia when I was 11 to play rugby union. Yep. Uh, so that was in my blood. And obviously uh, the racing. But, yeah, racing was always my first uh, passion. And I was just privileged to have such a great time. As you mentioned, you toured Australia as an 11-year-old playing rugby. It's about the age you started riding at too, wasn't it? And your, your apprenticeship that you had with the trainer Patrick Campbell, I think that started in 79? Yeah, I, I had my first ride, race day ride in 78. And uh, away we went. Took me, took me a little while to ride that first winner, but once I got that one, uh, the pumper was up and running. I think I rode 124 winners in the following season. Wow! And when did you first cross paths, uh, Jimmy, with that other champion rider, both here and in New Zealand, Greg Childs? Yeah, I actually my first trip to Australia was 81 Brisbane Cup, which I was lucky enough to have a ride in the PJ. PJ O'Shea, which was the lead up to the Brisbane Cup, and he won that. And then I went out and won the uh, won the Brisbane Cup back in '81. Then I got an opportunity to ride my first Melbourne Cup in '82 for the great man himself, George Hanlon. Mm-hmm. And I rode a horse called Amaranth, who ran about six. Um, I was probably a little bit overawed by the occasion, and obviously uh, that was a great experience to come back and have a crack at it the following year on horse called Kiwi. You mentioned the Brisbane Cup in 81, and it was a year later. You were still a teenager, of course, that you relocated to Australia. And by that point, you had uh, a lazy 500 winners under the belt, I think. But what what was the main motive for the move over here, uh, Jimmy? Oh, look, opportunities. Uh, they were setting up Nebo Lodge. It was owned by Robert Sankster and a syndicate, Bob LaPointe, um, syndicate of businessmen. And they had an ambition to knock off Tommy Smith because he had been reigning... Premier trainer for 34 years, and on the one year that we set up Nebo Lodge uh, back in '84, we had success that year, our first year to knock off Tommy. So that was a great achievement. Uh, Robert Sangster and Bob Lapointe gave me the opportunity to come to Sydney, and I didn't certainly didn't knock it back. I come over and had a look and and loved it, and uh, actually kicked off in Sydney 1984, 1st of August. And is it right that Noel Eels, a legendary New Zealand trainer, of course, had always he'd been trying to talk you into it for a while, hadn't he? He sort of mentioned about going going to Australia, and I I was happy in New Zealand at the time. And when I got the opportunity, I I said to my mum and dad, "Look, I've got to go and have a crack and see if I can make it in the big time." And uh, I'm glad I did. <laughs> You certainly, you certainly did that and then some. Um, you're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, of course, a family-owned business since 1934. Well, next, Jim Cassidy didn't take too long to settle in on our shores. We revisit the memorable 1983 Melbourne Cup right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, 
great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with legendary jockey Jim Cassidy. Well, Jimmy, the nickname The Pumper, of course, given to you for that distinctive pumping action in the saddle. Who came up with it and when did it stick? His girlfriend came up with it. Who did? Um, your girlfriend. His first girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't said uh, that was... before. You haven't said that before, have you? No, I. Um, there was a, a, a great uh, press writer that, the, for the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, bloke called Glenn Robbins, mm. and uh, I rode. I, I lifted a horse to win the last race at Rose Hill, and he come up to me and he said, "I've got a name for you." I said, "What's that?" He said, "You're the pumper." And I said, well, that sounds pretty good to me. I said, uh, I lifted that one over the line, pumped it over the line, so that'll go down nicely. And uh, it stuck ever since. Uh, it did. And the famous catch cry followed suit, which was, uh, you uttered this many a times, ring-a-ding, pumper is the king. When when did you start? Ring-a-ding-ding. Ring-a-ding-ding. Uh, when did you start rolling with that one? Well, I, I was having a bit of a lean trot going into the Caulfield Guineas when I was riding Redoute, and I thought to myself, uh, I had a bloke helping me at the time, Paul Langmack, ex-rugby uh, league player in Sydney, and he said, we need something. I said to him, I need something to get get the crowd going and get me pumped. And I said, racing's a bit boring at the moment. We've got to start doing something. And uh, he said, well, if you win the guineas, why don't you come out with ring-a-ding-ding, pump is still the king. And uh, I won the Caulfield guineas on Redoute, lifted him to beat me great mate Ollie on Testarossa, and that's when the ring-a-ding-ding started. So that was a lot of fun. It creates a bit of fun at the races and people love it. I still get a lot of people when I'm walking down the street yell, yell out, ring-a-ding. I was going to ask and, you that. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite funny, actually. A lot of people uh, still know me as the pumper or ring-a-ding. So uh, it's been a, a, a good cry in, the, in respect of uh, having a bit of fun. No, that's what it's all about. Now... Kiwi, it's incredible. It was the $1,000 farm horse that was used to round up sheep, yet you rode it to glory in the 83 Melbourne Cup as a 20-year-old. But you'd ridden the horse earlier in that year, hadn't you, to win the Wellington Cup? I won the Wellington Cup on him uh, back in January. And then he said, uh, look, we may go to Melbourne for the Melbourne Cup. And I said, well, I didn't really think I'd get the ride. I thought they would have put someone on a bit more experience, meaning Noel Harris, who used to ride ride Kiwi when I couldn't if I was suspended and uh, yeah look it was it was amazing feeling to get the call up to say you're going to Melbourne to ride Kiwi and look, I've never been so confident going into any race that I've ever ever ridden in and uh, knowing that he was a relaxed horse I knew that the mounting yard procedure with a lot of people around the yard wouldn't upset him and he just ticked all the boxes for me he was uh, he was a wonderful stayer Probably one of the greatest stayers I've seen in respect to, to the way that he won the Melbourne Cup. He hadn't had a run for a month before the Melbourne Cup. They said he couldn't win because he hadn't had a run in, the, in Melbourne prior to the Cup. Well, he changed all the record books. He never had a run for a month. He won his last start, carried nine stone, broke the course record. And then he ran in the, uh, in the 83 Cup, come from last and... At the uh, clock tower, that was where I wanted to be, somewhere close to them. And... 
the rest is history. He picked them up and put them down and said, thanks for coming, boys. Pace soon after the start and Bianco Lady going quickly. Kiyomare's dropping just in. Sars command, two lengths to no Pia. Veloso's getting up along the inside and starting to make ground, followed by Noble Heights, Nostradamus, English Wonder. Found and caught as well back, Chagamar getting up along the rail from homemade and then Shane Newt to Jean Mia giving them an impossible start by the look of it from Mevron Boy and Kiwi was two lengths away, second last and Amaranth tailed off completely. Up before the turn they run now with 650 metres left to go in the Melbourne Cup and Hayai moved up quickly to tackle the leaders. Mark Vogel is there and Kiyomare's moving up fast and Mr Jazz let loose four and five wide with triumphal march coming into the picture. They've beaten off Bianco, Lady Hussars Command looking for a run, Fountain Court getting into the clear and then No Pia at the 400 in the cup and Kiyomare's race to the lead moved away a length in front of Noble Comment. Here comes Mr Jazz on the outside coming home well. Then Triumphal March and further back No Pia at the 250 and Mr Jazz on the outside has gone up to take the lead. Noble Comment getting through in the centre from Kiyomare. Noble Comment and Mr Jazz settle down to fight it out. Noble Comment ahead in front and flying home as Kiwi what a run. One of the biggest performances you can ever see in the Melbourne Cup. Kiwi's flown home on the outside and won it running away. Two lengths to Noble Comment. Mr Jazz has run third, then No Pia. Further back was Feloso from Kiyomare, Nostradamus, Hassar's command. Then Fountain Court, Shainu, Chagamar, Triumphal March to Jules Mio. Well back was Mark Fogel from Hayai, Justa Dash, Bianco Lady. Mevron Boy, well back from La Cacotte, then English Wonder, Homemade, Noble Heights, and Combat was last. Bar one, Amaranth, which has failed to complete the course and is trotting down towards the winning post now. We at nine to one. Noble Common second at 16s, Mr Jazz third at 10s. The unplaced favourite was Kiamare, which started at six to one. And after the cup, Terry Clifton spoke with the elated winning jockey, Jim Cassidy. Well, it was the greatest rush I've ever had. Uh, the blood was boiling instant. Uh, an unbelievable feeling. Were you tempted to go earlier than you did, Jim? Not really, no. I'm, I've always ridden the horse the same. And uh, as I said, I, I had good advice from uh, New Zealand trainer Eric Temperton, who trained Silver Knight, I think it was, to win the cup. Uh, to sort of have the last run at them inside the last 150 metres and uh, that's what I intended to do and that's what he did do. Jim, we've seen a lot of uh, New Zealand's top jockeys come over here to settle. Uh, you've now created a great record for yourself. Will you be tempted to come over here now? Well, I'd love to come to Melbourne. Um, the money's a lot bigger, the races are a lot better to win and uh, the atmosphere at the races is a lot better and uh, it, uh, you put, put all them together and you've got really got a race meeting so I'd love to come for sure. Just take us back, Jimmy, to that day, 83 Cup Day. Now, Kiwi arrived at Flemington, I think at 10 to 1, and, and you settled the horse at the back of the field. Can you take us through what happened next from memory? Yeah, look, he was always going to be uh, towards the tail. Uh, they went along quite quick that year in the Cup. And it was a funny horse. Like You couldn't ask him to go until he was ready. And that was pretty much the way Snow rode him. When he was ready to do something, him and Snow would do it. And... I said to Snowy in the in the mounting yard prior to getting on, I said, what are we doing? He said, oh, I don't know. He said, same as usual. <laughs> and uh, same as usual was trail them around behind the field and hopefully be good enough to run home over the top of them. And the plan was always to be somewhere near them at the clock tower. Uh, the day I went on him at Hara a month before he ran in, in the Cup, Eric Temperton, who trained Silver Knight to win the, the Melbourne Cup back in the 70s, he said to me, Jimbo, he said, if you got him wound up at the clock tower, he said, they won't beat him. And I never went round a horse, got up on the fence, started to angle out about four or five out as I got close to the clock tower and he was probably still four or five lengths off them at the, at the time. I think it was Noble Comment, Mr. Jazz and Tiamari fighting it out. 
and then along come Jimbo and Kiwi. <laughs> I love it. I oh, just remember the pure shock of it all. And it was an amazing story, Jimmy. But I reckon your most famous partnership was, of course, and this is no great shock, with Might and Power, the 97 Melbourne Cup. And it was almost a polar opposite for you, wasn't it, in terms of your two cups? And this time you led from start to finish and you won it in a photo. Yeah, look, that was uh, that was probably the, a lot of pressure that day. Uh, he was so dominant in the Caulfield Cup. Mm. And the expectations were that he was going to try and do the same again in the Melbourne Cup and win by a big margin. But I knew that was never going to happen. Uh, he hadn't he hadn't had a run at two miles. He'd gone from 52.5 in the Caulfield Cup to 56 in the Melbourne Cup. So he, he had to lump another four kilos. Uh, there was a lot against him. But his determination, his will to win, marvellous training effort. And I must say, probably not a bad ride to get him home. So. <laughs> Of course. Uh, the, night, the night before the cup, I had Mr. Packer give me a ring to see how Might and Power was. Yep. And he said, uh, I said, why is that, Mr. Packer? He said, I've had a small interest. <laughs> I said, with no disrespect, what's a small interest today? He said, I've had four million at four to one. So oh. yeah, you think the cheeks on my butt weren't getting very tight coming <laughs> towards the line. He, uh, uh, Kerry Packer really knew how to settle your nerves, didn't he? He did. He uh, he didn't really worry about anyone else's nerves. He was worried about uh, having an investment, and the great man got the cash. And obviously, Might and Power saluted in a very very tight finish. Did you? You probably felt compelled to, but did you give him any guarantees that she'll be right on the day, uh, Mister Packer? We'll get it done. I did. I was very confident. I just knew I just had to get him to relax half the trip, and I knew he would do the rest. But mm. uh, luckily, he relaxed beautifully for me once we sort of got past the winning post to the 2000. And uh, I think my brother, or Greg Childs on crying game, took me on at the 1000, and then my brother took me on pretty much from the 800. So it was an outstanding performance to be able to carry the weight and lead all the way and, and certainly get the photo because no horse had ever won the cup by leading all the way. Might and power began well from Skybow down on the inside. Marble Hall's away quickly. Yobro dropping in behind them. Sapio going forward wide on the course around always aloof Arabian story. Bonsai pipeline next on the outside, followed by Elfring Glinder pull in the early stages. Harbour outside it and Count Chivas the rail. Wonder Remus followed by Skybow scrupulous and Ebony Grave is at the back of the field as Might and Power, the Field Cup winner, pulling against Jim Cassidy, took the lead with a circuit to run. By two lengths to linesman outside Marble Hall is also fighting the rider. Crying Game is next on the outside, followed by Court of Honor getting a lovely travel in behind Marble Halls, followed then by Yobro on the fence and then Sunny Lane Viali. Sapio, the outsider, is travelling deep. Markham is travelling sweetly on the rails. One Magnet Bay, always aloof Grandmaster. Bonsai Pipeline is three deep past the 2000 Wonder Count Chivas Arabian Story. Next is Doremus Harbadews following Arabian Story on the outside of Doremus and then came Ebony Grove, one and a half Alpha, who's drifted right back through the the field now from Sky Bowen, Scrupulous is last of all past the 1800 and Might and Power trying to do it all the way as he did in the Caulfield Cup leads three quarters to crying game second two lengths to Marble Halls a head away fourth on the outside as Linesman Court of Honor Yobro two lengths further back as Markham and Viali Bonsai Pipeline is wide so is Sapio around Magnet Bay Grandmaster over on the inside there as they head past the 1400 Magnet Bay one further back as always aloof and he's followed by Arabian Story Count Chivas and next to Remus Harbour the outside of him is three deep 
Two links to Ebony Grove, who's got up inside Alpha, and then Sky Bowen, scrupulous back last of all. Past the 1,200 metres now. Might and power the leader, three quarters in front of Crying Game. Hard ridden to be up there, second on his outside. Two lengths further back in the field. Linesman on the outside of Marble Halls, a length and a half to Court of Honour and Yobro. Two lengths further back as Markham on the inside of Bonsai Pipeline and Viali the centre. One further back as Magnet Bay, Sapio around it. Grandmaster sneaking up on the rail from Always Zulu for Arabian Story, Count Jefferson, Doremus. A good way back, Bonsai Pipeline has dropped out of it, followed by Harbour Dews when they came near to the turn. Ebony Grove's got some work to do, and Alpha's one of the last when they swept to the turn, where Linesman raced up and joined Might and Power. The brothers Cassidy turn around the bend together. Linesman under the whip and Might and Power. They lead from Yobro, third entering the straight. Grandmaster's coming home along the inside from Sapio. Here comes Doremus with a run. Arabian Story is next, and then Viali. Might and Power shook off Linesman, though. At the 300, he raced out by two lengths with Doremus challenging. Ebony Grove's getting a rails run, followed by Grandmaster and Markham. Might and Power, the leader inside the 200. Two lengths in front of Linesman and then Doremus on the outside. Might and Power, the leader. Doremus trying hardest, coming at him. Might and Power and Doremus. Doremus getting the Might and Power. They hit the line. Photo, oh! Nothing between them. Doremus or Might and Power in a close go. Photo third, either Markham or Harbour Dews is there. Our back behind those linesmen, Greg Hall is the whip in the air, he thinks he's won. In behind these to finish in the race was Arabian Story from Skybo, Ebony Grove, Grandmaster. They were followed by Sapio and Magnet Bay and then Court of Honour. Further back in the field is Scrupulous and always aloof Viali. Marble Halls as well back from Yobro, crying game. Money Lane, Bonsai Pipeline, Count Chiverson is one of the last and the numbers are in the frame. Number three, Might and Power has held on to win the Melbourne Cup. By a nose from Doremus. Fantastic. And what was, I'm curious to know, Jimmy, what was your relationship like with the trainer, Jack Denham? I mean, he never or rarely never spoke to the media and you were just opposites in many ways. Yeah, I was pretty much opposite to Jack, but I respected his ability as a trainer and the opportunities he was giving me. So I just sort of had to make the most of it. He'd he'd never won a Caulfield Cup. He'd never won a Melbourne Cup and he'd never won a Cox Plate. So Pumper delivered the whole three to him. So... (laughs) He uh, he should have been a happy man, but he was hard to get to be happy, hard to try and get happy, Jack. Yeah. Because, uh, he, he was a bit of a grumpy old bugger, but uh, that was his makeup, and I, I was just lucky enough to be in the right time to ride Might and Power. Ah, it was bizarre, wasn't it? But it was a winning formula, a winning recipe. I mean, so many wins, Jimmy. We could talk about them for hours. The Golden Slipper followed in 2001 on uh, Ha Ha. That, that was the first, I think, for, for Gay Waterhouse. Yeah, that was a great thrill to ride Gay's first slipper winner. Um, the father being obviously the legend himself, Mr. Tommy Smith, uh, and then Gay taking over. It was a great thrill for me to win that slipper. Um, I wanted to ride Accelerator because I'd won the silver slipper on him the week before. It was owned by some very good friends of mine. And Gay said, no, you're not riding Accelerator, you're riding Ha Ha, and she will win. And I said, that'll do me. And I went on Ha Ha, Accelerator run second. And she trifected the slipper that year with Red Hannigan. So she run first, second and third. Fair embrace followed by Ha Ha, True Jewels, New Key, Royal Courtship a long way back. And so too is Shove Off Pfizer. And then comes Viscount followed by Regal Kiss Hosanna. And last is Coral Salute straightening up. Donna Natalia leads Mystic. Accelerator is coming into the picture now followed by Red Hannigan. Spectatorial joining in and Ha Ha down the outside. Here's Ha Ha inside the 200. Ha Ha hits the 
the front from Accelerator, Red Hannigan, and Royal Courtship making a late bid with Hosanna, but it's Ha-Ha in front, and Gay wins a first lever, Ha-Ha, from Accelerator, Red Hannigan, and then Hosanna followed by True Jewels and Regal Kiss. Accelerator pulled up quickly on the run-on, followed by Spectatorial shove-off. Jimmy, I don't know how you rank or categorise your wins or whether you spend much time thinking about it, but where does the 100th Group 1 win rate? 2013, Zoo Yeah, pretty much at the top. Yep. Uh, I mean, I had a lot of great wins, rode a lot of great horses and rode for a lot of great trainers, but I rode in the 82 Melbourne Cup on Amaranth. That was my first ride at Flemington on the big stage, and then I finished it off... Uh, Riding my 100th Group 1 winner back there on Zoostar and the Coolmore. And, yeah, look, that was the icing on the cake on a wonderful career. I never expected to ride. I didn't even think of riding 100 Group 1 winners. But uh, the work, work ethic was pretty good. I was determined and I loved the game and things just kept ticking over nicely. And as we got closer to it, to be the third of all time to do it was mm. a great honour. And... As I say, to, to do it at Flemington on Derby Day, probably one of our biggest days in racing outside the Melbourne Cup, uh, was a wonderful achievement. These are the things now, I guess, the age and where you're at with your life, uh, post-career, that you must must warm the heart when you think back on them? Oh, certainly. Look, I can I can reel them all off uh, when the names are mentioned. Uh, I can still see how I rode them and what I was thinking before and the butterflies and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah look, I had a wonderful career. I... Had a lot of ups and downs, but I was able to get off the canvas and fight back. I, I always said after my disqualifications and suspensions that I was going to leave racing on my terms and hopefully go out uh, in a nice way. And I elected to, to retire at Flemington on Oaks Day uh, back in 2015. And I've got no regrets. I loved every minute of it. And the send-off they give me at Flemington, the BRC, was... Uh, quite incredible to be able to finish down there um on that big day was was very special oh fantastic uh you with this is your sporting life brought to you by tobin brothers funeral celebrating lives just visit tobinbrothers.com.au we'll be back with one of racing's great characters jimmy cassidy after this break you're listening to this is your sporting life with sam edmund for tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with champion jockey Jimmy Cassidy. Jim, did you feel at the time that you were one of racing's last great characters? Yeah, it was getting pretty boring out there towards the end because I think a lot of the jockeys get a little bit too robotic today. Pressure from owners and trainers, but... I was lucky. I went. I went and done a job that I loved doing. I loved going to work, and I loved having fun there. And whether it was arguing with the stewards or arguing with jockeys, we always left on a good note. And I knew we had to come back the next day and do it all again. So it was part of part of the job. I enjoyed it. I wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but I reckon if I put a sugar in and stirred it left and right, I'd sweeten you up. <laughs> because the, that's exactly right. Because the term "lovable rogue" certainly seemed to follow you every step. Yeah, well, everyone's got an opinion, and I'm entitled to one too. And uh, as I say, every punters have their favourite jockeys they like or dislike. And, you know, myself, when I was going, and the fellow riders today and girls, you're out there to be criticised. And uh, that's what it's all about. You've got to have 
you've got to have crocodile skin in this game. Mm. And if you've got that, you will always survive. I was, I was very proud of Michelle Payne when she won the cup uh, in, in 15, uh, when she'd come back and said, all them owners can go and get stuffed because they didn't want to put me on. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to voice your opinion. You get a lot of knocks in this game and, I admired her for that because she had nothing to lose. She just won the Melbourne Cup and she was entitled to her opinion. Some didn't want her and some did want her. So, no, I was proud of her. And I was very much the same. If I had something to say, I'd say it, whether it was wrong or right. I was happy to put my hands up and say I'm wrong. But tough game. You've got to be tough to survive. And uh, that's what racing's all about. It's such a great game. Oh, it's a great perspective to have, isn't it? Um the jockey tape scandal in 95, obviously a huge story at the time and federal police were obviously covertly taping the suspected drug dealer Victor Spink and what they also picked up as it turned out was a lot of calls between Spink and several high-profile jockeys, which included you. Now, you were cleared, Jimmy, by the Crime Commission of, I guess, the most serious of charges and that was fixing races, but found guilty of bringing racing into disrepute by providing tips for payment. All these years on, how do you look back on this time in your life? Oh, look, it was... It was badly handled. I thought the publicity was blown out of proportion. The chief steward, chief steward John Freck, uh, he, he, he was, uh, how do I say it? Uh, to me, he was a hypocrite. He couldn't lie straight in bed himself, let alone criticise what I was doing. Uh, and and to not be allowed to get a stay of proceedings to ride in the golden slipper the next day when I was subpoenaed to the High Court and couldn't leave, and sent a lawyer, barrister, and a QC to the AJC at the time uh, was an absolute joke. It was badly handled. We even had the Premier, what's his name, that goose Bob Carr, come out and say I was going to jail and all this sort of rubbish. Nothing was proven. I was cleared of, of all the charges bar bringing racing into disrepute. I thought John Shrek was an absolute grub, the Chief Steward. And if I had to go through it again, there's no way in the world I would have got what I got. To get five years mm. for something that was publicised the way it was was an absolute joke. It was disgraceful as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I was guilty for talking to the bloke, but I wasn't doing anything different to what jockeys are still doing today or what they were doing 55,000 years ago. Yeah, you were banned for five years, as you say. It was reduced to 21 months. I mean, you were front of the paper. You were back of the paper. Your career was seemingly in tatters anyway. I mean, a lot of people had you, as you say, completely written off. I mean, the stress must have been incredible. How did you get through it? Yeah, look, very tough times. Um, you know, to walk down the street, to go anywhere, my kids, my wife, all that, uh, to be put in the paper that way. And then when I was cleared of all charges, uh, I don't think they printed anything, which is typical of the media. Uh, that didn't worry me. I was tough. I was always going to come back. Uh, to, but to get five years and do 21 months for a, something they had, uh, pedophiles and, and criminals, murderers didn't get the publicity I got. And it was quite, it was quite pathetic in one way. I mean, to say... Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Packer owned the papers and I took them off the front page and the back page. I was on it every day, so that was hard. But look, I, I was always going to battle my way through it and as uh, I pretty much lost everything at that time, so it was pretty tough times. Took my kids out of school and obviously they were in private schools, put them in public schools and went labouring and 
kept my head high. I was uh, still proud to walk around, and I didn't run away and hide from anybody. I mean, to say I never squealed on anyone. Uh, there could have been a lot of other people go. Shane Dye, Shrek got him out of the whole thing and took him to Hong Kong. And then Shrek went to Hong Kong himself. So if you read between the lines, that was pretty smelly as far as I was concerned. But the whole thing was a debacle. I'd done the time and come back, got ready, and along came Jimbo again to keep that flag flying, got off the canvas. <laughs> we'll come to getting off the canvas in a minute. I guess the other thing from the outside looking in that probably didn't help the image a great deal was the fact that you did become good friends with Tony Mockbell, didn't you? And I think you always said what he did in his personal life was none of your business and he was a genuine positive influence on your life? Oh, look, he was he was great to me, Tony. He, he never uh, never put me in a situation that uh, I shouldn't have been in. Yes, I was good friends with him. Yes, I did socialise with him. Yes, I was at his place having barbecues. But then again, so were a lot of other racing people. So it was... Once again, um, uh, you meet a lot of different people in racing and I show them the respect that they showed me. So uh, I didn't really think I was doing anything wrong until uh, things sort of went a little bit pear-shaped. I guess the mental fortitude, and you've touched on it a bit, Jimmy, to get through something like this. I mean, it must have made you feel bulletproof to come out the other side of it. And, And now you must be proud of how you fought through it too. I mean, you had setbacks, but you always had comebacks. Oh, for sure. I was very proud of the people I had around me. I mean, to say most people run away when I got the five years, uh, which showed me what a pack of grubs people can be. And then they wanted to befriend me again when I come back and won the Caulfield Cup. Well, that doesn't go down with me. I just walked away and didn't have much to do with those people. They were only, they were in racing, but they had no, no, no friendship of mine. And I was just proud of myself while I was able to fight back and, and show them that, uh, you know, you can have setbacks, but when one door slams in your face, it's how you come out the other end of it. And uh, I was always proud to be able to do that. You won before this episode and you won after this episode. The wins after it, did they come with that extra layer of satisfaction just by virtue of what you'd gone through? Oh, for sure. Especially when I won the Caulfield Cup. That mm. was amazing. Uh, to do the time that I'd done, fought back and then got the opportunity to win the Cup. Um yeah, it was a good way to fight back and because in racing you've got to put your name in lights as quick as possible because people forget and uh, they hadn't forgotten about me. They just thought I wasn't coming back. But uh, the Caulfield Cup put me back in lights again and obviously coming out and winning the Melbourne Cup again and winning Oaks and Derbies and you name it, I ended up winning the lot again. So mm-hmm. And then rode me 100th Group 1 winner a few years later. So it was uh, the team I had around me. I kept positive. And as I said, I was always going to come back. I was never going to leave the great game that way. We're talking to the great Jimmy Cassidy on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back to wrap up with Jim right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Former gun jockey Jimmy Cassidy has been our guest today. Jimmy, you were suspended and fined many times for all sorts of riding offences. I mean, you're not on your own there, of course, but... Your mental state in the saddle, you wanted to push the limits, didn't you, every time? 
Well, you got to be. You're, you, you know, you're getting paid a lot of money. You got a lot of horse flesh underneath you that's worth a lot of money. Breeders, owners. So the cream's got to come to the top. You've got to push to the limit. Uh, I've done that on all my life. Uh, but when when I knew I was wrong, I'd put my hands up and say, yeah, look, I'll cop that. But uh, the competition, I loved it. It, it. it was great. I rode against some champion jockeys, rode for the, all the great trainers, and uh, it was just marvellous to be part of that. And to have the success I had and the enjoyment out of it was beautiful. Just on that, the competitive spirit and the will to win, was that born in you, Jimmy, or was that forged and hardened over time? No, I think it was pretty much born in me because I was always like that. When I played footy or or soccer or tennis or whatever, I just loved to try and win. And if I couldn't win the first time, I'd try and come back and win the second time. And uh, You've got to have that killer instinct in you to be uh, good at no matter what you do. I always said, to my wife and my children that it's easy to get to the top but it's very hard to stay there because there's always someone that wants to knock you off the pedestal there's always younger people coming through but to be able to do it for 38 years uh, I certainly wasn't at the top when I started but I worked my way there and I was just determined to, to stay on top because uh, to be successful at anything you've got to put uh, have sacrifices you've got to have a good work ethic and uh, as far as I was concerned, I, I had those because I wanted to be successful. I didn't mind missing Christmas and riding Boxing Day or I didn't mind miss going out celebrating New Year's Eve because we had New Year's races and that, that was just all part of the game. I loved it and uh, I wanted to be there competing and being aggressive and pushing all those limits to the to the uh, to the end to, to, to be successful. And I think in any walk of life, you must do that. I did want to ask you about the sacrifices because it's just incredible that you could do it so well for so long. And I think people unfamiliar with the industry specifically probably don't appreciate, you know, the sacrifices, the demands, the discipline required to do what you did. I mean, now in your late fifties, I mean, how's the body after so long in the cut and thrust? Yeah, look, it's, 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 it's good. A couple of little injuries, knees and a few things like that still play up a little bit, but, Overall, over the last couple of years, sort of settled down with not the bending and pushing and stretching and all the fitness training I used to do, that sort of thing. So it's settled down now and my weight's good. I'm at a stage in my life where I'm very happy and content. So uh, after a torturous uh, campaign that you go through as a jockey to consistently lose weight and perform at the high level, uh does take its toll but it's nice the body's starting to to, to, to lower and get to a nice uh, comfortable stage in my life now where the body's um, not as sore and the aches and pains that I, I had probably five years ago. You wouldn't miss the sauna would you? Actually I still went and had a sauna uh, <laughs> yesterday I went and had a steam and <laughs> I still enjoy my sauna I do miss it because I, I used to do it every day without fail mm. and uh, that, that's what you've got to do to be dedicated you've, you've got to You've got to keep turning up and doing the hard yards and the results will come. I probably should have suggested the biggest danger for you is in the garden, isn't it? Didn't you slice off a couple of digits there gardening recently? I did. I was very lucky not to take off uh, three or four of my fingers. I took a couple to the bone and I still have no feeling in those two fingers in the ends. But, yeah, very lucky. I was doing some hedging in a hurry as I was and uh, thought I'd get it done a little bit quicker. But uh, as I did, I went to rest the machine and, 
take something out of one of the prongs and accidentally hit the buzzer and nearly took my fingers off. So that was another little setback. But uh, we overcome that. And one of the press blokes said, how are you going to, uh, how are you going to be with, the, with, the, with one hand? And I said, as far as I was concerned, I was beating up the jock with one hand anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was coming, but it was still good value. Um, Jimmy, yeah. what, what joys do you find in life now? I mean, you have three daughters there. You love your golf. I just the adrenaline that racing gave you and would have given you. I mean, was it somewhat hard to accept that there would be nothing that could replicate that once you retired? Yeah, well, just being with my family is as good as that. I mm. mean, to say when you know everyone's healthy and safe, and especially through these tough times that we're going through at the moment. But look, I, I, I was prepared for that. Uh, the adrenaline rush going pretty much out the window, but I still get keen now watching the races and get goosebumps and. I know how the boys feel going over the line, salute and winning the group ones and seeing my great mate Bossy and winning the Cox Plate last week and seeing Ollie win the Turnbull and, you know, still seeing the boys riding at, at the, the great peak of their career as Ollie and Bossy and Craig Williams in Melbourne and Jay Mack and Bowman and all them guys, I still get a great thrill watching them. So that adrenaline used to be there, but I, I can feel what they're feeling uh, on on their occasions. So that's still special. That never goes away. Yeah, and what never goes away also, as we touched on a bit earlier, is the satisfaction. You must kick back and be, you know, quietly really satisfied that you squeezed every last drop out of yourself in your career. I mean, you're a member of the Hall of Fame on both sides of the Tasman, so that must give you, must make you feel good inside, I guess. Yeah, it does. Look, I, those were things that you, you never really, well, I never thought about him being in the Hall of Fame um, but to be inducted into both Sydney and uh, Australia and New Zealand was you know a great feather in the cap and uh, once again I just think of mum and dad the opportunities they give me if they didn't give me them I who knows I, I could have been a bricklayer or a gardener who knows but uh, I thank them for that I, I lost my dad a couple of years ago so I've still got my beautiful mum there and I cherish every day and also with my three daughters, Nicole and Sasha and Piper and very proud of Zach and Nicole, the way they're going in Hong Kong. It's beautiful. Mm. He's working hard and it's always a team effort. Good wife, or happy happy wife, happy life and Zach's doing that and my other daughter, Sasha, here in Sydney and Gay, she's going very well and, and then obviously Piper, she's 16 and in December and seeing another young lady grow up and not far off driving and those sort of things so that keeps you on your toes and that's why I get all my adrenaline now and I've got a beautiful wife Vicky she's been tremendous and uh, obviously retired I've been with Labrokes for five years and I'm an ambassador for Lexus Parramatta so I've got plenty on and I do a lot for a company called On The Bit Racing in far north Queensland and I'm also back mucking out stables and washing down horses at Jim and Greg Lee's stable at Ramwick. So I've got a few shares and a few horses there and also been making Melbourne Richard Lamming. So I've still got to spread across racing and, and keeping interested. And the main thing is my wife's happy, my kids are happy, and that makes me happy. Sounds like life is full, Jimmy. I mean, uh, the obvious question would have been asked this many times before we finish up. Any regrets? No regrets. Look, everything I've done in racing, whether it was good or bad or indifferent, I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, the only regrets you probably have are people that let you down and you thought you trusted that ended up being uh, 
little snakes, but that, that that's life. You learn that, and uh, I'm 58 in January, and I'm still learning, so I'm happy. Uh, racing was, was wonderful to me, and I was very appreciative uh, the way I finished at Flemington and, and also in Sydney. So, as I say, clickety-cluck, we ain't coming back. Jimmy Cassidy, Jesus, it's been great to talk today. I mean, two Melbourne Cups, a Golden Slipper, a Caulfield Cup. I mean, you put your name on almost every major cup or trophy in Australasia. It was an up-and-down career, littered with controversy, of course, but bursting with success. And your daring style, didn't it make you a favourite with the punters? Well done on all you achieved, and, and thanks a lot for joining us. And I'd just like to thank all your listeners and those beautiful people that followed the pumper. Keep safe and uh, look forward to a, a beautiful Christmas coming up. Good on you, Jimmy Cassidy there. And thanks very much for listening to the best of your sporting life for 2020, made possible by our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. That's the end of our best ofs for the year, but we'll be back very soon. A big 2021 ahead of us and more trips down memory lane with some of Australia's biggest sporting icons. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.